You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. We only have to look at the UK proposition for nuclear to realise it is exceptionally expensive. It always takes five to ten years longer than expected to build. It always costs 50 to 100% more than people expect to build. We've had months with no coal-fired power generation in the UK. It's been one of the big successes of UK energy policy. For July 12th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This spring, the UK government released some 50 documents outlining a package of plans to advance its energy transition and reduce its carbon emissions. The plans covered a wide range of incentives and objectives, including a new energy security strategy in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, guidelines for funding carbon capture and storage and hydrogen projects, a revised green finance strategy, carbon border taxes, sustainable aviation fuels, mandates for clean cars and clean heat, including incentives for switching to heat pumps, major infrastructure projects, and many more. But the centerpiece of the package was a response to a lawsuit filed last year against the government by the UK's High Court. The court found that the government's net zero strategy could not deliver the emissions reductions required by its legally binding sixth carbon budget. So the response, filed on March 30th this year in what some call the UK's Green Day, included a carbon budget delivery plan that explained how the government intends to meet its legally binding climate goals and detailed the emissions impact of government policies over the next 15 years. Obviously, this is a massive amount of new information to absorb, and frankly, it would have been well beyond my capacity to summarize it for this show. Fortunately, the UK think tank Carbon Brief did that heavy lifting, and their award-winning senior policy editor, Simon Evans, agreed to walk us through the key highlights of some 3,000 pages of these new plans and explain what it all means. Longtime listeners may recall that Simon joined us previously to discuss all things hydrogen in episodes 142 and 143, and to discuss the UK response to the Russian invasion in episode 171. After listening to this two-hour interview, you'll know just about all there is to know about the state of climate and energy transition policy in the UK. Then in the news segment, we'll note a surprising coda to the European response to Russia last year. We'll explore why power prices went negative across a wide swath of Europe in the spring, and what it suggests for the future of power generation in the continent. We'll see why renewables are surging in the U.S., and why Republicans are trying to kill them. We'll applaud a new law restricting utilities in Colorado, and we'll salute a fine day for renewables in Spain. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements. We're extremely pleased to announce that the Energy Transition Show now has over 100 organizations who have taken group subscriptions to the show to make it available to their employees, colleagues, faculty, and students. It's a huge milestone for us, and we are incredibly grateful to all of them for supporting our show. If you think your organization would like to make the full benefits of our annual subscriptions available to its members on a discounted basis, just drop a line to accounts at energytransitionshow.com. And now we'd like to welcome our newest group subscribers. Kingston Infrastructure Partners is an infrastructure investment fund based in Miami, Florida. And Frost Brown Todd is a full-service law firm operating in 16 offices across eight states and Washington, D.C. We're so pleased to have them on board. We'd also like to just quickly remind our annual subscribers that there are two ways you can share the Energy Transition Show with a friend or colleague. 
First, every annual subscriber has three share links per year that they can give to someone else. Each share link will give the recipient one free month of our monthly subscription, which lets them listen to the two most recent full episodes. And second, you can buy a year of our annual subscription for someone else, which will give them full access to our entire back catalog, plus the other features that are only available to our annual subscribers. To access both of these features, just log into our website, click on your name in the upper right-hand corner, and go to the Manage Subscription page where you'll find the Gift Accounts button. And although we haven't mentioned this before, anyone can give a particular episode to a friend by clicking the Buy This Episode button on any show page. After you add the episode to your cart, look for the Give as a Gift option button. Finally, if you are an annual subscriber, don't forget to post any open jobs you are trying to fill or look at the current openings on our exclusive members-only job board. As I record this, there are openings for researchers, economists, analysts, editors, and more. And now, our conversation with Simon Evans, recorded May 26th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome back, Simon, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, Chris. It's great to be back. So in what some have dubbed its Green Day, on March 30th, the UK government released a big package of plans to advance its energy transition and climate action. And you and your colleagues very helpfully summarized those plans, now comprising a whopping 3,000 pages across 50 documents (laughs) in an article published the next day on the Carbon Brief website. So I guess my first question is, how the hell did you do that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. And actually looking back, I'm honestly not sure how we did do it. <laughs> I guess I would say firstly, just to pay tribute to the great team we have at Carbon Brief. Um, so it certainly wasn't a solo effort. I worked on this article with Daisy Dunn and Orla Dwyer, um, two of my colleagues. And for Orla in particular, a lot of this material was really new. So she did incredibly well just to dig into all of the detail and help us get through it all. I do remember that I didn't get a great deal of sleep that night. Oh, bad. <laughs> and then beyond that, obviously, we did know this day was coming. So it wasn't like a surprise. We knew it was coming up. So we'd planned quite carefully ahead with some of our writing. And we also knew who to ask in terms of where we would find the most important bits of this package. Yeah. And then finally, I guess a key thing we did for the main sections of our piece was to really just zoom in on the most important of those many, many documents which was, I guess, probably not accidentally, almost the very last one to be published. So it didn't all come out in one single splurge. The documents kind of drip drop bit by bit. And the most important one, which was called this carbon budget delivery plan, and that was the government's official response to a court case from last year, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a minute, because it's really a key part of the story. Hmm. And that was, yeah, it was literally kind of hours after the first bunch of stuff was published, that one came out. But to come back to your question, how did we cover 3,000 pages in two days? I guess great colleagues, lots of preparation and good information, both from our sources and our own sense of kind of knowing where the bodies were buried. Right. Well, fantastic work by your team. My hat's off to you guys. And as I've mentioned previously on the show, just a huge fan of the work that our Carbon Brief does. And I find your regular emails very helpful, actually, too, in sort of keeping track of the news flow. So... My kudos to all of you. So as these documents offer a good look at how the UK government intends to proceed with its own energy transition, I thought it would be helpful to our listeners to review some of the highlights of this sprawling package of plans and why the government is proposing them. And one proximate impetus for this package appears to be that in July of 2022, the UK's High Court ruled that the government's net zero strategy, which was published in October 2021, 
did not add up the emissions reductions called for in the UK's legally binding sixth carbon budget. The court gave the government until the end of March this year to come up with a new strategy. So, hence this new package of plans. So, can you tell us what that lawsuit was about and give us an idea of how much of a gap was found between the government's net zero strategy and the carbon budget? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked me about that court case because, as I said, it's really the key to this whole sequence of events. But to answer your question, I really need to back up a little bit and explain the UK's Climate Change Act. So in 2008, under the Labour government at the time, the Climate Change Act was passed with the support of all but five of the 650 MPs in Parliament. Actually, if you like a little bit of trivia, just try and look up which five MPs it was and (laughs) see if you recognise any of those names from perhaps associations with climate sceptic lobby groups or anything like that. Uh But, you know, five out of 650, so it was really like a tiny, tiny fraction of Parliament. Yeah, call it unanimous, close enough. Yes, exactly. So the Act sets a long-term target for the UK, which was originally to cut emissions to 80% below 1990 levels by 2050, And then later on, everyone caught up with the idea that we needed to get to net zero to actually stop global temperatures from going up, particularly with the Paris Agreement being passed. And so in 2019, the UK's long-term target was updated to a 100% emissions cut, so effectively to net zero. Now, alongside that long-term target, another key part of the Act is to tell the government they have to set carbon budgets And what these do is they cover each five-year period and they set a limit on emissions for each five years. So, for example, the sixth carbon budget that you mentioned, that's a cap on emissions for the whole of the UK during the period from 2033 to 2037. And crucially, the next part of the Act is it says the government has to publish plans for actually meeting those carbon budgets. So the people that were legislating this, they really thought through quite carefully how not only to set the ambition, but then the interim targets and then also the delivery plans for this. Interesting. So when do they develop these plans? Have they already set the seventh carbon budget or is that going to be done later on? Yeah, it's quite a long way in advance. So we've already got that sixth carbon budget for 2033. Yeah. And that was set a year or two ago. I see. But the seventh carbon budget hasn't been set yet. That will be kind of the next big milestone. And they'll probably develop that in like 2031 thereabouts they'll start working on the seventh i think it's actually further in advance than that because we've already set the sixth carbon budget and that's 10 years away oh okay gotcha all right well i was just curious about that planning process because yeah we don't have anything like that over here so what did the court ruling say yeah so the high court ruled that the previous government strategy which as you said was published in 2021 they said it was unlawful for quite specific reasons, basically because it didn't include any detailed numbers showing exactly how those carbon budgets were going to be met. I mean, it had a bunch of ideas in there, you know, all sorts of proposals, policies, targets, blah, blah, blah. But it didn't say like, here's, let's say, a target to phase out combustion engine cars. And that target is going to save us, let's say, you know, 20 million tonnes of CO2 during the sixth carbon budget. Um, everyone kind of understood at the time that the government had probably worked those things out. They probably did have a spreadsheet hidden away somewhere, but they'd explicitly chosen not to publish it. So what the court ruling said is, okay, government, your strategy is unlawful. And what you need to do now is to publish a new version showing your workings with those detailed numbers in it. And the reason that they gave is effectively parliament and the public have a right to scrutinise those plans. And so the court gave the government a deadline of the end of March 2023, as you said, 
And that's kind of one of the big reasons why we knew Green Day was going to happen. Gotcha. We, you know, we kind of had a sense that it would be left until the very last possible moment. And indeed, <laughs> it was just a matter of a few days before the end of March. Right. Now, that's a bit of a digression. But to come back to your question, the government's original 2021 strategy had only included enough policies to get 95% of the way to meeting the, the UK's sixth carbon budget. So that's effectively a 5% shortfall. And what's particularly interesting about it is that we actually only found out about that shortfall as a result of the disclosure process during the court case. Oh, interesting. So in a sense, like even if the campaigners bringing that case hadn't won, they already had won some level of transparency, if you like. Mm -hmm. Now, you could call that missing 5% of the policy gap, which is the gap between the UK's legally binding targets under the Climate Change Act and the policies in place to meet those goals. But one interesting aspect of the court ruling is that the High Court said, you know what, it's actually okay to have a policy gap because, you know, we talked about how far in advance these carbon budgets are legislated and the targets are off into the future, the future is uncertain and moreover there's still time between now and 10 years hence in which this government or future governments could bring in new policies to close that policy gap, if you like. Mm -hmm. But where the court came down much harder was on this idea that Firstly, you do need to be transparent about what you think your policies will achieve. And not only should that be like the headline 95% figure, but also the, the similar numbers on a policy by policy basis. So whether that's the combustion engine ban that I mentioned. And then secondly, just as important, the court said you need to think about the risks to delivery. So are your plans going to deliver in full? Will they be delivered on time? What are you going to do to close any gaps that open up to meet your targets if your policies fall short? And it's actually, I think, really important for the court to have focused on this point because as well as the court case, the government's Green Day was also responding to a slew of reports coming out over the last year that have been really highlighting the UK's delivery gap. Mm. That's looking beyond the policy gap and saying, okay, you've got all these policies. And in theory, if you delivered all of those policies in full, you would get 95% of the way to the target. But actually what happens if some of those policies aren't actually legislated yet. How's that actually going to work out? So just to take one example, as of last June, the government only had credible policies for 39% of the emissions cuts needed in the sixth carbon budget period, according to the government's official advisors on the Climate Change Committee. Hmm. So that's an absolutely massive delivery gap where, yeah. yeah, sure, the government might have given kind of a vague sense of what it's planning to do, but in terms of actually implementing and delivering those plans, it's way off. Right. So just to kind of try and wrap this up, this is really about the rubber hitting the road. And to be honest, it's far from unique to the UK in terms of having this ginormous delivery gap on its climate goals. Obviously, it's all very well having a long-term emissions target as your destination. You know, that's kind of one of the big criticisms of the proliferation of net zero targets, both for countries and for businesses. And invariably, they're very far off into the future. So in that sense, the UK is probably ahead of many other places in terms of not only having that long-term destination, but also having an interim carbon budget along the way. And on top of that, it's also got a big and detailed climate strategy plotting out the route map, if you like, to reaching those goals. But even with all of that, the UK still has this big delivery gap because you can't just write down a load of climate policies. You actually have to turn them into reality. Right. But I just think it's wonderful, actually, that there is so much transparency here that the court is insisting on. And for that matter, that Parliament passed that law to begin with, making it legally binding to meet these targets. 
I mean, those are both massively greater advances in terms of policy than the U.S. has gotten to. We're very happy to still stew around in these vague, distant goals that no one really knows how to meet or <laughs> no one's showing their work in terms of how they think it's going to work. And no one has any detailed plans for how to get there or any of that stuff. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. But answering the court's ruling by addressing these gaps, both the ambition gap of only aiming to get to 95% of the way toward the goal, and the delivery gap of actually formulating credible policies that would deliver on those goals, those were just part of the Green Day slate, weren't they? Several of the documents you summarized tackle other things like energy security and incentive programs as well. Right, yeah. So the court ruling was really the proximate driver here. But effectively, seeing as it was being forced into this big kind of set piece policy announcement, the government also used Green Day to respond to all sorts of other things. So particularly Russia's invasion of Ukraine, mm. um, the ensuing global energy crisis, which we talked about last time I was on the show. Right. You know, that's seen fossil fuel prices soar to record levels and obviously has put a huge kind of spotlight on energy security in the UK and many other countries. And pushed a lot of UK consumers into poverty, I understand. Absolutely, yeah. Unprecedented energy bills, you know, basically the highest ever seen as far as we could tell. I look back to 1970 and that was as far back as the records went and way off the charts last year. Wow. And so kind of bearing that in mind, you know, that kind of political imperative for energy security, at one point there were media reports saying that this idea of it being called a green day was actually going to be turned into an energy security day. And there was even reporting saying it was actually the whole thing going to be launched in the UK's oil and gas capital, Aberdeen in Scotland, <laughs> and that it was going to include not only all of these documents, but also new licenses for oil and gas production in the North Sea. Oh, of course. Now, now, ultimately, I mean, whether that was just a kind of trial kite to see how people would receive it or whether it was people trying to make it turn into reality by briefing that to the papers, I don't know. But ultimately, it didn't happen. And so it wasn't officially called Green Day, but the focus was quite strongly on the carbon budgets and all that. And in his announcement of the new plans, Grant Shapps, who's the current Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero, actually you can see even in the name of this new department that was kind of renamed quite recently, Energy Security and Net Zero are kind of the things they're, they're considering to be important. Anyway, in his comments, he highlighted this need to break with the fossil fuels that powered our last two centuries. Hmm. And that sounds great, but what I would say that is is not to be too blinded by the words on paper. And I don't think you should underestimate the extent to which this current version of the UK's Conservative government is probably making climate plans reluctantly. They're really forced yeah. into this by the court case. Yeah. Um, of course, they'd never admit to that. But don't forget, Rishi Sunak, who's the current Prime Minister, he actually only went to the COP27 climate summit last year because one of his predecessors, Boris Johnson, effectively shamed him into doing it by basically saying, I'm going to go to the summit, are you going to go? <laughs> and then, of course, the other element that's been very present in climate and energy policy discussions over the past year is this kind of global race to net zero triggered, I guess, by the wave of subsidies in Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. And obviously the kind of related new ambition in the EU's Green Deal industrial plan. So in theory, Green Day in the UK was responding to all of that too. But really being honest, it was pretty half-hearted. Mm -hmm. So in the run-up to this, we'd had business groups, campaigners, industry, loads of different kind of interest groups clamoring for some kind of UK response to IRA. 
And yet, at the same time, we had UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt explicitly kind of rejecting the idea of, how you put it, going toe-to-toe in terms of subsidies with the US and the EU. And not only that, he effectively kicked the idea of there being any kind of formal response to IRA into the long grass by saying that there wouldn't be any more details on a UK response until the autumn. And basically, that might as well be never. I mean, you know, the bus is leaving. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to coal market analyst Guillaume Perret, as recorded in Bloomberg, massive stockpiles of coal that Europe accumulated last year as insurance against supplies of Russian gas being cut off are now being reloaded at European harbors and shipped to markets such as Morocco, Senegal, and Guatemala. The reason? Europe's many efforts to eliminate the need for Russian gas, as we discussed with Simon in episode 171, had the desired result. Along with increased imports of liquefied natural gas from the U.S. and elsewhere, and mild winter temperatures, most of the stockpiled coal wasn't actually needed. According to think tank Ember, the European Union actually burned 11% less coal compared to the previous winter. But if coal is left exposed to the elements in outdoor storage, it starts to degenerate and eventually becomes useless. So traders are trying to sell off the stockpiles before it becomes worthless. Some 1.12 million tons have been shipped out of Spain, the Netherlands, and other European ports this year, including a cargo of more than 145,000 tons that went to India in April. At the same time, the price of coal imported to ports in the Netherlands has tumbled to less than a quarter of last year's highs. Item 2. Balmy springtime weather across Europe and growing renewable energy generation led to multiple days of negative wholesale power prices right across the continent this year, according to Gerard Reed, the co-founder and partner at Alexa Capital. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. 
Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.